Hello and welcome to Do The Franchise with me, Jake. And me, James. And it is, we are, it's, that's a terrible intro, we're back with we're, Batman Begins, James. Yeah, we're, we're, we're beginning. Four films <laughs> we're be- in. <laughs> we're beginning again with <laughs> Batman because we did begin Batman and then we forgot to do Batman Begins and we took a long time off and now we're back. We're back again with, with Batman Begins. I feel like a lot of our podcasts start with, sorry about the delay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're that's all. Well, that's kind of my fault. I moved house recently and have been rebuilding a house, so I, don't I haven't really say had time. It's your fault. It's not your fault. It's just what it happens. Is. Life happens. Life gets in the way. Yeah, but it's usually my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I don't have one. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Uh, partially true. I've been Sad too busy. True. We're um, but yeah, we're back and we're gonna smash out the Dark Knight trilogy. I feel like this one is, um, and I kind of don't know how to phrase it properly, but it's kind of the Dark Knight prequel because I think a lot of people saw Batman Begins after they'd watched the Dark Knight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so many people had probably and quite rightly been put off by the previous Schumacher outings. Yeah, they didn't really give this a lot of attention. Um, and it, it had a lot of money pumped into sort of promoting it. Uh, it was yeah. the biggest promotional budget, apparently, at the time. Uh, but equally, in its development, they did a lot to hide the fact that it was a Batman film. I agree. Uh, I agree. Because the, the script originally was titled The Intimidation Game. Oh, you've already beat me. I already had that on my list. Ah, and you've sorry, already done dude. it. Sorry, dude. That's, yeah. I've only got four facts left now. Oh, <laughs> I'll see if I can pick off the rest of them throughout the, the, the podcast. No. Uh, no, but yeah, so I, I think the fact that they spent so much time hiding the fact that it was yeah. a Batman film and that yeah. expectations were, let's say, low. Low for, for superhero films at the time anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, I think you're right. Most people saw this after seeing The Dark Knight and thought, actually, The Dark Knight was really good. Let's watch the original film. It came out in 2005, and I think what's a, str- what's a strange thing to think about from people listening to this who might be quite a bit younger than us is that the superhero film genre kind of got its start in the late 90s, early noughties. And mm. by 2005, it had kind of been done to death every year. So we'd had like Fantastic Four, X-Men, Blade, Blade Trinity. Don't want to talk about that one. Uh, I think mm-hmm. even like... I don't know if Ghost Rider had come out with Nick Cage. There'd been a lot of films of that ilk. The Spider-Man trilogy had had come out pretty much by then, I think, or or it was well into two films by then. Yeah. Um, There'd been a lot of X-Men films. It all sort of happened, hadn't it? And then all of a sudden, they're going to reboot Batman Begins. uh, Sorry, Batman. And and you're like, oh, we're kind of done with superheroes. That was so last year. Yeah. So to literally reinvent a franchise... In the way that they did in this film, I mean, it's superb, this film. I think take this film out of context, like you say, forget the promotion, forget that it's a Batman movie, um, take it at face value. This film is a masterpiece of filmmaking. <laughs> it is. I, I know like going into this, uh, you and I had talked about it and, and mm. I'd said to you, uh, and I, I, I probably still believe this, but I, I, I think having rewatched the film, I've changed my mind. I yeah. used to think Dark Knight was my favourite of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. I rewatched this film and 
this film feels more like a Batman film than The Dark Knight does. Yeah, uh, and and there's a few different reasons for that that we'll go into, but definitely this this film feels more Batman, and it it's so successful in in portraying the world in in building the world of Batman. Um, and and there's there's certain things it does that then the next two films throw away. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm starting to change my mind. I'm starting to believe that Batman Begins is the the better of the trilogy. But uh, yeah, I, I've always been the advocate for this since watching all three of them as a as a you know as a retrospective. Um, Nolan himself had always said that they were three very different films. Um, of the same trilogy, but each defined in a different genre. Mm. And I think that's very true. Um, Batman Begins, just before I start off, really, it was given 8.2 on IMDb, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. For me, it's definitely a top 10. Like, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. I just think it's got... It hits every beat that I want a film to, to hit. And I remember saying to Natalie, like we were talking about popcorn movies and I said, you know, popcorn movies kind of started with Jaws because Jaws was that film in the 70s that everyone went to see. It sold out every theatre. It kind of ticks every box. You've got character, you've got drama, you've got action, you've got a great score, you've got an, an all-star cast, you've got like so many things going for it that I think Batman Begins does that. It's like an ingredient of, right, we get a good cast, yeah, Get a good screenplay. Yeah, we got it. Have we got visual effects? Yeah, but there's not a lot, but they're they're good. Right, cool. Have we got a Batmobile? Yeah, we we made a really good Batmobile. It's like, okay, sound. Have we got a good actor to play Batman that can also play Bruce Wayne? We think he's pretty good. Like, cool. Do you know what I mean? Like me and you said before, they need the certain ingredients that you need to make a successful, and and forget other superheroes, but a successful Batman story has to have a certain ingredients set. And this has it. I think it really yeah. does do it properly, and it's and oh, I just love it. I can't say enough about it. Oh, definitely. I think it it's got all the right elements, and the I think the care that went into making the film is really evident. Like the uh, the fact that uh, Nolan brought Goya on to help mm. finesse the screenplay because Goya is a real comic book fan. So yeah, uh, th- those things are a really important. Way it wasn't like a singular director's vision. It was someone who knew how to make a good movie who asked someone about comic book movies, about comic book stories, rather, how they should make their movie. And I think that's the difference to some of the movies we've seen more recently from DC, where it's been trying to shoehorn a singular vision Mm. and uh, not necessarily paying too much attention to how stories work. (laughs) Yeah, I completely is... agree. Yeah, I think so, Raimi yeah. did, did that with the Spider-Man film, especially the first one, where he was yeah. like, "I'm a filmmaker, but I don't really know anything about Spider-Man." So I, I, you know, everyone knows his origin, you know, blah 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 blah. But then you have to bring on a, a writer, and you have to bring on a team that will give it enough that will satisfy hardcore fans. But then it needs to have mass appeal. And I think that they did that, you know, especially in the early noughties with these comic book films, they did that really well. It's mm. kind of different with Marvel and DC now, like you say, because they've gone such they've gone so niche with these movies that unless you are up on your comic book films, or at the very least, if you haven't seen nine of the prequels to this one, you're not really gonna get anything yeah. out of this movie. And I and I find that a little bit it's a bit it's a bit exclusive, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's it's an achievement in its own right, but like you say, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, we had to do a whole episode on, on how to watch 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe to get the most did, out yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, whereas I think the nice thing about Batman Begins is you literally you can just jump in, everything's explained to you through you experiencing the film. Uh, there's no, there's, there's not a lot of big exposition dumps. It's quite natural the way stuff sort of occurs, and I think that's yeah. that that's testament to how well the story is written because they're not having to, uh, you know, cut to a character explaining a situation. You you see how that mm. situation ar- uh, arose. So yeah, I like it. I like that. Yeah, the very nature of the storytelling in this, how they do it through the medium of flashback, um, but we don't know it's flashback when the film starts, which I thought was quite clever. Like, you see Rachel and Bruce and the well and the bats, and that's like, okay, this is where it starts. Very good. Then it jumps forward about, what, 25 years to when he's in prison. Um, that I think that really works for me, like how they go back and they tell you a little bit of Bruce's origin to how did Bruce end up on that mountain in, in Bhutan? Um, really well, really clever. Um, I mean, a few things I wanted to kind of go through first. We want to talk about Nolan. Nolan's first, for me, it's like Nolan's first massive mainstream movie. Uh, he's a household name now, but prior to Batman Begins, he'd done uh, Memento. Uh, I think he'd done Insomnia with Robin Williams and Al Pacino, really good film. Um, but his films were much smaller scale than they are they were they were thrillers really they were small mm. town small time thrillers and then to jump to he's now rebooting warner brothers batman franchise it's, it's quite crazy isn't it yeah it, it was I, I think marvel get a lot of credit for picking small directors and mm. allowing them to do big franchises and, and taking risks uh but i think dc have always taken risks like keaton was a risk as as bruce and batman yeah. Uh, and, and in a way, Nolan was sort of a risky choice to do a big blockbuster superhero movie because hmm. it, it's not something he was very well known for. No, you can also tell as well that like the Goya script and the influence of they needed certain beats, like they needed action beats and they needed comic beats. But Nolan's not really known for that in his movies. But this movie feels very separate. It feels like there were certain things in it that you needed to have in order to make it a popcorn film. So like the bit with all the exploding barrels in Ra's al Ghul's um, League of Shadows uh, mountain mountain area, whatever you'd call it, mountain base. Yes. Um, the cop cars on the freeway where Bruce is trying to get Rachel to, um, to the to a manor. And, and there's also a little bit where like, Gary Oldman's driving the Batmobile and there's like a guy going nice ride and then and then you know and Gary Oldman has throwaway lines like uh, oh I gotta get me one of those I always think that they're like for me they're very much within that popcorn flick Hollywood movie um you know remit you wouldn't really necessarily want that from an indie film or from from a normal in real life those things don't really happen yeah in the larger than life action movie those little beats are fine you can have those in and they are they funny they go down really well I I totally forgotten how quotable this film is. Oh yeah, there's, there's so many cool lines in it. Like um, even at the beginning, where he he starts his fight uh, at the prison, and the guy mm. claims to be the you know I'm the devil, or you know he says you're in hell or something like that. And and Bruce's mm. throwback line is you're not the devil, you're practice. And I love things like that. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so cool. It's it's very much like the the sort of yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger style action hero throwaway comedy line uh, yeah, but it's it, wicked. It, it fits so well with this even though if you took all those traditional sort of 
action star actors, they wouldn't fit into this world. But these no. lines really do. It's great. Yeah, it's one of those scripts where I feel it's it's just finessed. It's just enough removed from reality for it to be a Hollywood blockbuster. But it's emotion behind the scenes, the story elements, the the loss of the father, the gaining of a mentor, the um, you know the, the the drive of fear. Like this film, surrounded mm. by fear. That's the whole point, isn't it? Is that Bruce starts out with this fear. Um, this fear leads him to leave the theater. The theater then is the place where his mum and dad are killed, and he feels responsible for that. Um, to then meet Ra's al Ghul to have the fear purged. And at the very end, when we come full circle, it's Ra's al Ghul is literally going to use fear to destroy Gotham. Yeah. Um, so that, for me, really works really well. And, and it's, a, it's, it's grounded enough that I can buy it as a, as a spectator. But it's also got enough of those larger-than-life elements, like you say, where I'm like, okay, it's fantasy, it's a blockbuster, I, I can deal with it, it's fine, I don't mind this, and I can really get like excited in my chair. And there was moments in this film where, um, particularly with the chase sequence with the Batmobile, um, there's a particular moment where Batman is hanging off the, the, the bottom of the monorail, and like they show you the monorail from a point-of-view shot going up the tracks towards yeah. Wayne Tower, I think that's so exciting. I think that whole sequence is shot and and it's done so well. But again, then you can cut to a really emotional scene between Bruce and and Alfred. Like after the Batmobile chase, there's a really beautiful exchange between Michael Caine and Christian Bale about um, you're you're your father. Your father's name's all that's left. If you go and destroy that, you might as well just chuck it all in the bin. That that really worked for me. I think those emotional moments uh, really ground the film, particularly between uh, Michael Caine and Christian Bale, particularly between Ra's al Ghul and Liam Neeson's character, um, and even between Gary Oldman and Batman. Like, There's just so many good little niche relationships in that movie that work really well. Um, it, it, yeah. It's a really good I, look at the characters. You know, the, mm. the, the I think the previous sort of Batman films, the the character was probably Gotham. Uh, yeah. And and they they really made that a character, but in here it looks at the individual people within Gotham, and I think that's really uh, a really cool way of doing it. I mean, should we just talk about the cast and get it out of the way? I mean, yeah, well, this yeah. cast is it is unbelievable. And actually, going back, me and Natalie watched it together the other night. Um, it was really lovely. Like we're in our new house, we got settled for our first big film night, and it was and it was this. So. I love this film anyway, as we've as we've always as I always said to you. But just looking at the cast, so we've got Christian Bale as Bruce and Batman, Michael mm-hmm. Caine, we've got Katie Holmes, we've got Liam Neeson, we've got Gary Oldman, we've got uh, Rutger Hur is in this film as like yeah. a, a background character. Really, he's Mister Earl, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Tom oh, Wilkinson. God, we've got Tom Wilkinson as Carmine Falcone. We've got um, we've got Killian Murphy as the Scarecrow. Like. It's just a who's who all-star cast. It's absolutely phenomenal, this cast. It's it's fantastic, isn't it? And we've got, you know... Did we say Morgan Freeman? We did say Morgan Freeman, didn't yeah, we? We've got Morgan Freeman. We've got... Uh, um, you've said Celia Murphy, haven't you? So, yeah, we've got... Yeah, yeah. And Rutger Hur and Rutger Katie Hur. Holmes. Um, um, this just... It's so good. This even, like... I just love all the background actors as well. All the background characters work really well for me as well in this film. There's not yeah. really anyone like there's the kid that's um, the kid that plays Joffrey, whose name I've not got written down uh, in Game of Thrones. He is in this film um, as is. the uh, as the child that gets rescued by Katie Holmes. Um, 
Yeah, it's wonderful. It's so... And again, I think that's a poster thing, isn't it? Like, if you have all those names on a poster, you can't really ignore that film. And I actually remember when it was when it was coming out, I was still living in Nottingham, and they had the big Batman Begins poster with him silhouetted behind a cloud of bats. Yeah. And that was on my bus, my bus stop on my way home, and it had the cast at the top. And I remember looking at it and thinking, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how much does this film cost? <laughs> it's, mm. it's a... It's a lot of people involved that will probably have really high uh, wage expectations because a lot of them yeah, were totally. already Oscar winners, weren't they? When they when they yeah. did the film, uh, yeah. So yeah, they, they the the billing was incredible. Um, I thought we'd just dive in then, kind of plot wise. We've talked about the intro. It starts in the prison when Butan, and then we meet Henry Ducard, played by Liam Neeson. Um, Liam Neeson, obviously, spoiler alert if you've not watched the film, because we are just going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, but that is Ra's al Ghul, isn't it? So Liam Neeson was Ra's the whole time. That's the that's the twist at the end. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, in, in the comics, uh, the, the Ra's al Ghul, or, or head of the demon, uh, or demon's head, is um, immortal, and he's kept alive through uh, the process of using this mystical thing called the Lazarus Pit. In this film, they, they poke fun at that, because yeah. in in the reveal that he is Raz, he's, he says, "Oh, is Raz Agul just a a mantle, you know, passed on from person to person, you know?" Uh, and the the myth of him being immortal is a parlor trick, uh, yeah. Because the the uh, League of Shadows, as it's called in this film, uh, they're all about theatrics. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's a theatrical device to make people afraid of him. Basically, it goes back to that fear thing. Yeah, and it's like very clever because the League of Shadows, in the context of this film, was a secret society that basically destroyed civilizations once they'd got to the peak of their decadence, as, as he says. So, like, they were responsible for the sacking of Rome, uh, the plague. They were they were responsible for the burning of London in the Great Fire. And it's like this idea that this secret society's been there the whole time and they always resurfaced to sort out a a problem city or a problem, you know, society, um, yeah. which is a really big com- context, a, a, a big con- um, concept for a um, for a Batman film. I like that we. Um, I said to, I just think this film is so much larger than life. I mean, this movie is told over two and a half hours with you know Bruce going from a Bhutan prison to becoming Batman and fighting on a train, but it feels like. A quest, like the film starts with him saying, "You need to get this flower and bring it to the top of the mountain." It's got something very sort of old-fashioned, like Ben Hur, Lawrence of Arabia. The scale of this film, when it pulls out to those wide shots of the glacier that he walks up, yeah, um, it's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? Like to think that we've gone from watching a league of um, <laughs> of ice hockey players with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> making puns to. <laughs> To actual ninjas in a Bhutan mountain and a glacier, and it, I just think, are we? Is this the same franchise? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's night and day, isn't it? It feels like a completely different film, but weirdly yeah. has I I felt when I was watching, it's got sort of echoes of when Clark walks across the ice fields in yeah. the Donna films. So it mm. seems to ha- have that sort of throwback, doesn't it? Where you know. Uh, yeah. Clark's creating the fortress of solitude in an ice field, and this, this is Bruce walking to his own sort of 
solitary fortress to train. It's it's really it it really does chime in with a lot of the DC films up to that point uh, that were good <laughs> and tries to <laughs> ignore a lot of yeah. the bad ones. <laughs> yeah. I think that you hit upon something really poignant there. I think it's very much of that Donna um, recipe. Like, it feels very much like the Donna Superman. Uh, it's got the all-star cast. It's got a larger-than-life um, concept to it. Um, the shot choices are, are you know, these great wide-angle spectacle shots like you get in Superman. Mm. Um, even the even the superhero shots in this film, like where Batman lands on things or when he flies across the uh, the narrows, they're all very echoey of the grand Superman um, flying scenes that Donna did in Superman one and two. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely say that. Uh, there's a great sequence where they fight on the frozen lake. Yes. Uh, apparently, that lake was actually cracking underneath them. So the noise you hear when they're walking on the ice and it's cracking, um, that was all that was all in camera. And apparently, yeah. when they returned to film on the ice a day or so later, it was a lake. <laughs> it <had> just completely <laughs> melted. So they could have been in real trouble. Wow. Oh, gosh. Well, it it, it feels real, doesn't it, when they're on it? it you can tell yeah. it's... I mean, I think if this film was made today, that would have all been green screened. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, and, and wouldn't have that, that reality to it because I think Nolan, so... Nolan's always said that though, hasn't he Nolan's always held very much that he'll do everything in camera wherever he can yeah I mean that that goes down to like uh I, I was reading apparently the uh scenes where you see like an individual bat is a real mm. bat uh, and they only use CGI bats for the big swarms because they didn't feel they could control that many bats but yeah when it yeah, was yeah. an individual bat it was a real live bat that they were filming so uh yeah he, he he's very conscious and keen to to film real things when he can do them in reality so yeah it's uh, it shows because you, you yeah it has more impact it has more weight yeah definitely do you know what you said as well about the being it being more of a definitive batman film than anything we've seen even more so than the one we're going to be reviewing next week which is the dark knight it, are there any bats in dark knight and dark knight rises i don't think there are i think that's probably why you have less association with the batman idea yeah. because there aren't any bats in the other ones, are there? Like he is. There's loads of bat sequences in this. There's the one at the beginning with the bats in the well. Yeah. It's like the really cool bit where Bruce goes into the bat cave for the first time and gets. He kind of. It's where he immerses himself in them, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and then there's the bit in Arkham at the end when he brings them to him. He summons them. Yeah. I, there, there's very few bats. I think the other thing is a lot more of these scenes. It feels happen. Uh, this movie feels like it happens mostly at night, which mm. ties in more with like the Burton stuff. Whereas I think when you go, you move to the Dark Knight, even Gotham has a very different feel. This Gotham feels more closely linked to the Tim Burton Gotham because of the, yeah, the monorail. It's grungy. It's grungy. Yeah. There's the monorail going through. It doesn't look like one of our cities. Whereas I think in Dark Knight, it just looks like Chicago. It just is Chicago. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Uh, whereas they they seem to have made more effort here to make Gotham feel a bit more fantasy. I know. Uh, I think the Narrows scenes were yeah uh, mostly done on on a film set. Um, yes. But the the actual wide shots of Gotham still feel like you say grungy. They still feel different. Mm. Uh, I think Nolan was quoted as saying it's New York on steroids. Um, yeah, I like that idea. Like you said, the Narrows being this. 
it's like its own section between two rivers, isn't it? If yeah. you look on the map, there's a little map sequence. Um, and in fact, when there's a there's a pan over Gotham shot at the very beginning of the film, where you see the island and then you see the Narrows is like a little island, which has got all these shanty town shacks on it, and it's yeah. kind of a run down poor part of Gotham with the monorail goes through it, but. Um, and Arkham's on it, isn't it? Arkham's kind of like right in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, and, and the Arkham narrows... Asylum was a building in London as well, by the way. It was shot in London and then yeah. CGI'd into the cityscape. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I, I think um, it, it, it just, again, I think that's why this feels more Batman-y. It feels like it's very much in that sort of Burton, uh, Batman and the Animated Series. So mm. it, it feels like it's in that period that story whereas the the next couple of films that nolan did they they become more grounded in like a, a real world city um yeah they, they there's i i guess there's a sense that for this you know dark knight gotham's trying to clean up its act trying to be mm. this great city and i that's that's the bit that always makes me giggle is at the end Raz uh talks about how he's going to show the world that it's its greatest city can crumble. I was like, how is Gotham the greatest city? <laughs> Surely he means Metropolis, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny that he's, he's going on about how Gotham's the world's greatest city. I was like, have you visited recently? <laughs> this place is a dump. <laughs> my, my missus said the same. We're like, if he really hates Gotham that much, imagine when he goes to like London or Nottingham or Hull. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do think that this film does a really compelling job of showing you into Bruce's mind. Because um, obviously we've had this discussion before that if you're Bruce Wayne um, in a Batman film, you have to play three characters. You have to play Batman, you have to play real Bruce Wayne, and then you have to play the playboy Bruce Wayne. Yeah, uh, I think Bale does a really good job of the playboy Bruce Wayne, especially. I think that's a particularly good thing. He's almost born to play that role. Yeah, um, And I think there's a certain... I don't even know if it's like a smugness about that about the actor and about the character he plays, but I feel like if you said that man over there is a billionaire who doesn't work, he's living off his dad's money and he just likes to date women and drive cars, you'd look at Bale and go, yeah, do you know what? I'd probably believe that. That, yeah. that looks like that kind of guy. <laughs> and Definitely. then when you realise he says that thing about, you know, it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you. And I like that you get to see the soft side of Bruce um, there's a really beautiful bit where um, him and Katie Holmes are in the car and he's going to kill... Because Joe Chill obviously kills Bruce's mum and dad. Um, yeah. Joe Chill is a nobody, isn't he? And the point of the film is that this nobody crook kills these two people and then basically gives birth to Batman. Mm. But um, like Raz says, they were killed by one of the people that they were trying to help because they were advocates for um, making the city a better place and then they got killed by a by a villain. Um, and then you get that bit where Bruce says, I'm going to, I wish I wanted to kill him all my life. And now I can't kill him because Carmine Falcone got to him first. Yeah. So he throws the gun into the river. And I really like that bit because it's that thing of, he sees Joe chill with the gun, looks at the gun and then throws the gun into the sea. And I was like, that's kind of him. That's the Batman bit where he says, Batman doesn't use guns. And yeah. for me, that that's why, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, that gives you the perfect reason of he doesn't use guns because that's what, destroyed his life guns he hates guns yeah yeah it's it's it, it, that sort of moment where because 
young Bruce, when we see young Bruce in the in the flashbacks, initially there, mm. uh, he and Rachel are fighting over the arrowhead. Got more yeah. of that later. That's actually kind of interesting. But the okay. uh, the fighting on, over the arrowhead, uh, and he's kind of obnoxious. He's he's an awful kid, really, because he's <laughs> he's sort of he's got that self importance because he is you know the the son of a billionaire. He's you know, and that at that point you know you, you've you've seen Rachel almost sort of reject the person he's become because she slaps him for wanting to kill Joe Chill. Yeah, uh, and he he basically derobes doesn't he? he gets rid of his clothes to the mm. homeless person um gives him his money and stuff like that and just walks just walks leaves gotham and walks away and he he, he sort of leaves that part of his life behind mm. and it, it is so it, it's so well done it's really it is uh, symptomatic of, of what what batman is batman is uh, it's for the nolan trilogy being batman is a sacrifice yeah, and he because yeah. he goes to see Carmine Falcone first, doesn't he? And um, Falcone says, "You think because your mum and dad got shot that you know about the ugly side of life, but you don't." And that is true. Like he to that point, he's never really experienced anything other than this murder of his mum and dad, yeah, which was tragic. He's never had to want for anything, and. Falcone almost says to Bruce, doesn't he? Like, you need to go and live your... You need to struggle like people out there struggle. Then you'll get desperate. When you're desperate, you'll become a criminal like me. And that is the bit that inspires him, like you say, to derobe and leave Gotham, which is wonderful because whilst he's gone, Falcone kind of makes his empire and Bruce then comes back to dismantle that empire. So in a way, um, both Joe Chill... Uh, Falcone, uh, they're all kind of responsible for Batman themselves. Yeah, yeah they they create, um, in a really they beautiful way. Absolutely, because it, and it it this feels more natural than the way sort of Burton shoehorned uh, mm. Jack Napier in as the killer of the, uh, the Waynes. You know, yeah, it it feels more realistic. It feels more like okay, it was this random nobody, but it was the entire situation of Gotham that created Batman. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I I like the way it's done. And then I love the montage of Bruce being a criminal, but only do, really yeah. stealing from Wayne Enterprises, which I thought was <laughs> yeah. a really yeah. good. Way of he doing only steals it. his own stuff. I thought yeah. that was really good. Yeah. Um. So uh, we do get introduced at the time that uh, Bruce's parents die, obviously, to a a young Jim Gordon. Uh, mm. You know Gary Oldman. I I wrote my note. Is the is the human core of the film. He's sort of like the audience. He's yeah, just he sort is. Of wandering through, experiencing all these things and trying to trying to make sense of it. Trying to stay on the straight and narrow. Understanding that most of the cops are on the payroll of the Falcones uh, of the world. And and he's he's just sort of he's just there experiencing it up until the end where he gets involved. But. Yeah, I thought yeah. he was. Uh, it, it, Gary Oldman's just fantastic. He is. I mean, he is fantastic and everything. If we could, if if only we just did films on this podcast that Gary Oldman was in, I'd be happy. I think I'd be yeah. fine with that. Um, yeah. To to like you say when you when you see Oldman in real life doing interviews and the way he comes across, he does seem like the Hollywood everyman. Yeah. 
um, in a kind of way that we reflect upon people like Tom Hanks being the the, you know, the American everyman that's the best person to be in a movie. To me, Gary Oldman is the British everyman. Yeah. You can kind of put him in any situation and that actor gives you gold. Mm. And I think, like you say, in this film, not only is it an, an astounding but understated performance, but he also gives you something of it. Like you say, the human core of the film is the Jim Gordon character because he's he's not doing the bad thing, even though the bad thing is the easier thing to do. Yeah. He's not on payroll, even though being on payroll would be the easier thing to do. He lives in quite a modest house because you get to see his digs, don't you, at one yeah. point. And he's got a family and a wife and kids. So he is literally the emotional core of that movie. And, and ultimately he is the one that saves the day because he's the one that destroys the railway track at the end. Yeah. So uh, he kind of does save the day anyway. But um, yeah, I like that bit where Gordon just pops into the office and puts a jacket around baby Bruce. Yeah. And it's so quick. It's such a quick moment. If you're not watching, you'll miss it. And then he goes and he's just like a rookie cop then, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really it's a really good introduction. The 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 world building, not just for like the scenery, but the the people is great because you are slowly introduced to all of these characters. So you do feel yeah. by the end of the film, you know them, you know what they do. Like the um, there isn't sort of a a big uh, sort of exposition dump about even things like the fear toxin. We're introduced yeah. to that really early on in the film. Uh, yeah, with the flower. Uh, yeah. So you you know exactly what all the the properties of these things are in the film. So when they say that they've put the fear toxin, you know, a weaponized version of the fear toxin inside the the water supply, it makes sense. It doesn't feel like it's just sort of all of a sudden this this is a thing they've invented for the plot. It's been yeah. there the whole time. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. I like that as well. Um I like that when you when when Raz finally reveals the plan to destroy Gotham, it's that scene where he asks Bruce to chop that man's head off and he won't do it. Yeah, and it's that whole for me. It's it it's kind of chilling because it harks back to that idea of do you remember when you know well not even that long ago like ten years ago when when the war was on and they were kind of saying that kids in the UK are being radicalized by people who are appealing to their nature mm. um, and twisting facts and lying on the internet and trying to groom people into becoming terrorists and that kind of felt like all of that in that one scene where we've been on this journey with Raz and then all of a sudden. He says you need to chop this man's head off with a yeah. samurai sword, and you're like, "Why?" And you go, "He's a criminal. He does, this man's a murderer. You need to kill him, and then you can commit to the cause." And Bruce says, "Well, I don't want to kill this guy. I'm going to fight criminals instead." Um, and that that flipping of the switch in terms of, "Oh, these guys aren't really that good. They're actually quite bad, and they want Bruce because Bruce was the rich son of Gotham, and yeah. he would be in a really good position of power to be able to dismantle Gotham's social structure." Um, and obviously that's why they groom Bruce, isn't it? As opposed yeah. to just being any old any old guy. Uh, so yeah, like you say, I like how all those things come together. I like it when Bruce comes back to Gotham. We're introduced to Crane, um, which played by the wonderful Killian Murphy, Gordon, Lucius Fox. That kind of all comes within about 15 minutes of each other. So you get the villains and the heroes all laid out on the chessboard, as it were, yeah. within that 15 minute. Uh, sequence and and then and then he finds his cave under his house and it's like oh it feels like a Batman film now yeah he finds the cave and it, again it, it's given a like a real world explanation because they say it's got a yeah. link to the Civil War and the uh, Underground Railroad and things like that so it <coughs> it feels bedded in reality um, mm-hmm. I think 
uh, it's around this time as well that uh, by this point Rachel's discovered his back and yeah. has has given him the you know it's not who you are underneath it's what you do that defines you uh, sort of rebuke and I, I love that that's when you see you see like a chink in Bruce's armor he's not he, for a brief second when he's looking at her after she said that he's not Bruce the playboy he's the real Bruce yeah. and he looks hurt because. Uh, she can't see the real Bruce through his. No, he can't tell her. Yeah, and uh, she she uh, drops by uh, later in the film to give him the arrowhead back, and you mm-hmm. see that Bruce again. And I mentioned the arrowhead earlier. I, I think it's worth bringing this up. So, the film doesn't talk about this in in any meaningful way. But obviously, the uh, that there's a strong sort of uh, religious aspect to the League of Shadows. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it it it's varied throughout comics and and TV shows and things like that. So it's uh, the idea is they've been around so long that the League of Shadows is an amalgamation of pretty much all faiths. So there there isn't a like a singular place they come from. Uh, the Arrowhead uh, they actually used again in the TV show Arrow, um, and it's it's in Buddhism it's called a hosen, and it. It's a symbol of reconnection, hmm. which I think in this film makes so much sense because it, it's it's how Bruce and Rachel reconnect. She, yeah, she and I guess gave... how Bruce reconnects with the city after he basically left the city to rot, didn't he? Yeah, and he came back to save it. So it, it's so cool. <coughs> it's such a subtle thing. I, I, Arrow, yeah. the TV show, was heavily influenced by the Nolan films. Um, so the fact that they used that, um, it. A, a, as as part of their story, and they go into a lot more detail in explaining it. Uh, I thought it was really yeah. really cool. Uh, but yeah, so so Rachel, and and this is the other cool thing that Christopher Nolan does. People who've listened to our Batman coverage so far will probably <laughs> get bored of me saying if it feels awkward or weird, it's because it's not an original character. You know, it's not an original yeah, comic book character. Nolan you about Rachel? This. Yeah, Nolan breaks that completely because Rachel isn't an original character. She made no. her way into the comics after these films, but she's not an original comic book character. And she feels completely bedded into this reality. She feel It feels like it should always have been part of Batman's story. But it, yeah, she I wasn't. agree. Uh, and I, I know Katie Holmes got, at the time, a lot of stick for her portrayal of Rachel. But I think she does great, and it, it's obviously uh, we we get a, a recast of Rachel in the next film. But I think Katie yeah. Holmes rewatching this film now, fantastic, and she carries on a good um, sort of theme of uh, Batman fem- uh, female characters who have been in real life married to Tom Cruise. Yeah, that's so, weird, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, in the in the first Joel Schumacher, uh, they had another Tom Cruise <laughs> wife, <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Oh, so so Tom Cruise yeah. has a, a weird association with Batman films um, and wives. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, that was that was interesting to me. I I like the fact that he's able to bring in this fresh character that then yeah. feels like they should always have been part of Bruce's story because it, it's uh, it's usually Alfred that anchors him to his humanity. Mm. Um, which he does do in this film, but he's got that extra anchor of of uh, Rachel, which is it, it's nice, yeah. it's good for him. I would go even further than that. I would say that throughout the plot and throughout the three films as a whole, which obviously we'll talk about as we go through them, um, 
you've got the Fox character, so Morgan Freeman, um, Gary Oldman's um, Gordon character, and Michael Caine's uh, Alfred. Yeah. All three of them are like a holy trinity of Bruce's conscious, aren't they? Like, yeah, they are. They are the good human side of Bruce without which he's just a vigilante as, as Alfred shouts at him yeah. in this film like if you need those three anchors for Bruce to anchor him to reality otherwise he is just Batman and it doesn't have any grounding or any purpose but all three of those people are his moral compass in a way and they keep him grounded and I, I really like that idea of, of those three characters and, and Rachel as well being being his grounding pins for the film it really clever really yeah. works really well it is um it- I, I think um, that just the the inclusion of those characters, and that I, I think we've discussed this before, that this film focuses more on on Bruce than it does Batman. Um, yeah. In, in terms of the amount of times you see him suited up versus the times you see him as Bruce, it's got mm. more of a focus on Bruce, and it, it it's a very deliberate thing because uh, the the attacks that you see Batman perpetrate. You hardly ever see Batman there either. You see it from the perspective of the criminal, don't you? Mm. Uh, yeah, like a moving, like a shadow moving really quickly. Yeah, it's shot like a like a horror film, um, yeah. which is perfect. It's it's really clever uh, choices by the director to not let you see Batman, but let you feel like that fear of there being a Batman. Uh, I yeah, like I agree. That works really well at the dock when he's on the shipping containers and there's a criminal who keeps shooting at the shadows and then he just goes, where are you? And then Batman's behind him, um, which works really well. That's, I, uh, that's a really cool bit as well because I think I, it feels like that's almost a, a homage to like the Keaton Batman. Yeah. Because he's sort of hanging upside down, isn't he? He just sort of whispers, I'm here. And, and that feels something like what Keaton's Batman would do. Yeah, and it works really well. I do think when you finally get the reveal and he's on top of Falcone's uh, limo, yeah, he there is something very imposing about that costume and the man in it. Yeah, and I feel more so even than and I said to you before, like I obviously I love Keaton's Batman. I don't feel like any of these Batman characters so far have been actually scary until I saw this one. Yeah, and when he stood, especially when he stood on the train bridge with Rachel. And he's talking to Rachel. I think that's a very imposing shot. And the costume and the eyes and the, the cowl, yeah. they are scary. They look, if you saw that man, he is intimidating in that costume. He doesn't look campy at all. No. So to say we went from George Clooney, hi, Freeze, I'm Batman, yeah. to, <laughs> to, to Christopher Nolan's Christian Bale in a suit, yeah. it's really terrifying. It works really well. Um I like that we see Falcone mounted on the light, making the bat symbol. Again, another beautiful little touch yeah. to say, we're not going to put the bat symbol in it yet, but this is the bat symbol as we're going to do it in our film. It's going to be a criminal strapped to a massive fog light. Yeah, they even um, call that out dock. later, don't they? Where um, yeah. Jim Gordon says, well, I didn't have a crime boss, so I made my own <laughs> or something to those effects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. Um, we we then get this little scene, which is a bit throwaway, but like you say, it 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 needs to be there in order to further the plot, which is um, a microwave's been stolen off the back of a boat. <laughs> yeah, but it's not a normal microwave; it's a pretty big one. Um, it's really important and it's military grade. And Batman should really be looking for this microwave, but he's got other stuff to do at Arkham. Yeah, I, I like that because you uh, films that have like these parallel plots that then all of a sudden cross over. 
it's great because yeah. it's it's sort of introduced that idea that you know a criminal organization we like to find is the League of Shadows has nicked this yeah. um this uh, design that the the Wayne Foundation the Wayne Enterprises have made and you think oh what's that got to do with anything you know uh, and, and then all of a sudden it's on a train in Gotham and it's weaponizing the uh fear Water. toxin yeah uh, and yeah. it's brilliant and it works really well because it's that bit where i think within a 20 minute period you get the sequence with the boat and the microwave emitter and then it cuts to um when rachel goes to investigate arkham and killian murphy's um scarecrow is there and obviously we've seen scarecrow a few times and he's really really scary he uses the fear toxin on falcone he uses it on batman and then he uses the fear toxin on Rachel. Rachel sees the criminals. He's got all of the Arkham inmates dumping toxin into the water pipes. Yeah. They? And we don't really see those two come together until the final act where it's the water supply is full of toxin and there's an emitter that will vaporize it into gas. It's like, oh, that works really well. That, yeah. It's like, it's like the, because obviously I know, I think me and you've talked about this. Scarecrow does use toxin in the, in the comics, doesn't he? That's like a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it, that that's quite uh, apparently. I think uh, from what I was reading, Nolan wasn't going to have Scarecrow wear a mask. Mm. Um, there, there's lots of stories about Nolan being really obsessed with Killian Murphy's eyes, and that's why. In yes, film, I've read this. <laughs> there's so many shots where he takes his glasses off. So I'm guessing they're not wearing a mask. Things all down to that too. But uh, Goya was like, "No, we we need to put him in a mask because that's yeah, that's the most accurate thing, and plus it helps with the." You know the the fear aspect, and apparently they had other shots of the mask where, as the dosages in, were increased throughout the film, uh, they had more and more sort of organic-looking uh, hemp masks that would be more like form-fitting to his face, yeah, uh, and, and more scary. And, and we don't see those in the final cut, but apparently they had other versions of of Scarecrow in uh, you know during a, a fear uh, toxin ep- episode. Uh, which would have been mm. quite cool, but uh, yeah, because I feel like he's he's. I love the character. Don't get me wrong, and I love Killian Murphy as an actor. Um, I almost feel like Scarecrow is almost an afterthought in this film. He doesn't really do anything yeah. um, to the degree that other Batman villains. I know we've seen obviously a lot of Batman now. We've seen a lot of films. Um, we're going to be talking about the other villains as we go on to The Dark Knight next week, but. I feel like he's almost like a B or a C villain. And I know that mm. Raz is the real bad guy. And even Falcone gets a really good a good villain introduction in this mm. film. But I felt like Scarecrow, in a way, he was just a catalyst. He wasn't really he wasn't really able to flourish as a villain. No, in this he, film. he he was he's sort of a, a henchman, isn't he, rather than a Yeah. A, 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 a real sort of antagonist. I think he's uh he he sort of gets mocked in the next film and gets a slight reprieve in the third one but it's yeah he does yeah, yeah. It, it's uh yeah he he's not really given uh the attention that uh especially in things like if you ever play the the arkham games uh scarecrow mm-hmm. features quite heavily in the first one uh and yeah he's a, a very sort of imposing villain in the comics as well so it is a shame that he's sort of two or three tiers down in this film but it, yeah. it's good to see him there and I think uh, they, they sort of channel uh, Killian's inner Jack Nicholson when um, Batman attacks them when they're um, tipping the fear toxin in the water mm. uh, and yeah. Killian Murphy says the Batman 
in a very sort of Jack I, Nicholson yeah, way. I agree. I've written in my notes that Killian Murphy really steals all those little scenes. Um, the basement one with, with the Jack Nicholson one, as you just put it. Yeah. There's a scene with um, when he's with Rachel, and he says, "You know, maybe you should have some clear your head." And the scene with um, with Carmine Falcone, Tom Wilkinson in the cell when you first get the reveal that he is Scarecrow. Yeah. They're all really, really beautifully made. Like just as a scene, as as someone that studied film at uni, like they're like the perfect composed scenes where two actors just bounce off each other and then it takes a really dark turn. Yeah. Um when he gasses Falcone and then walks out and says, Oh, he's not faking. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> uh, I really like those those little moments where Killian cuts from being Killian the doctor yeah. to he's a really sick, nasty person. Yeah. It is so well done. I think it's it it felt to me at, at times like they were sort of practice runs for the conversations that the Joker would have with other characters in the next film. Yeah. So like Essentially, the, yeah. Like the Falcone one, especially uh, where he start, you know, uh, where Scarecrow starts talking about his mask, it mm. it feels like the bit in the hospital with Joker and Two Face. Yeah, it, it's got a similar kind of feel where they're just having like this really calm conversation that then goes completely off piece by the end. It's it's really really well done. Yeah, it is really well done. There's um yeah, and then we get like there's a really beautiful bit where um. Batman is seen through Crane's eyes when he's been fear gassed. Yeah. And Batman's got, he's like a demon and all his face is melting. Uh, it's really creepy. I thought for CGI, because there's not a lot of CGI in this film, really, in terms of, I know the final act's got lots of CGI in it, but the use of CGI character work in this film is quite small and it's used yeah. for things like you say, like the bats. It's used for things like the monorail train and a few extra sequences like that. But you know mainly the cgi is not it's not heavy like it is in superhero films of today mm. and i felt like that bit where killian's being squeezed by bruce and he's then melting and he's like looking at him all terrified i think it's just a brilliant little little scene i love yeah. that I, I love the way he he sort of realizes he's being affected by his own fear toxin and his yeah. only response is dr crane isn't here right now if you could leave a message <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really like that bit it's so good um there's a they say the bat chase where they he escapes Arkham, like you say it feels very Batmany. Yeah, uh, I'm going to use the phrase Batmany because that's that you know we know what that means. Absolutely, um, it's yeah. very Batman esque. And then there's the chase sequence with the tumbler, um, built by Ford apparently, um, and it then just goes around Gotham destroying cop cars and haphazardly destroying fences and yeah. buildings and rooftops. There's a lot of carnage in that scene, but Absolutely. I, I really enjoy whenever he gets gadgets out in these films, especially the Nolan ones, because I feel like they're very thrilling. They're like James Bond level thrilling. They are because they the uh, the the thing with like a lot of the James Bond gadgets is that they were futuristic and fanciful to a point, but almost believable because yeah. uh, like they're. Um, I think it's in Goldfinger where Bond uses like a, a, a an underwater breather that's a pen. Apparently, the mm. military wrote to the film company to ask them where they got that because it was such a cool idea. So yeah. it was almost believable enough that the military thought it might exist. And, and I think that's what's cool about things like the, the gadgets he uses here, like something to attract bats. 
Uh, it, yeah. It's something that you could almost imagine that would exist. And and the tumbler certainly, I love. I mean, the sound effects for the tumbler are brilliant. The growls it makes, and uh, it's a phenomenal piece of kit, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and again, perfectly works within the context of this Batman universe, where they said it's a it's a vehicle that we're going to use in the military. It's got military wheels that you can obviously see. It's got camouflage color on it at the yeah. beginning of the film, and then by the end of the movie, it's it's been painted black, but it can go across bridges, across rivers, towing cables, and then it can make a bridge for other vehicles. And that's why it was built. And you're like, oh, yeah, fine. Yeah. I buy that. Yeah, I, that I, I mean, I, I buy that 100%. And that's why it has the throttle on it, so it can boost into a, a rampless jump. Um, that whole thing, I think, and apparently it wasn't in the film. It wasn't written in. Goya and Warner Brothers and Nolan were all on different pages about it. Um, Goya couldn't reconcile it with the script. Nolan didn't want it because he thought it was silly. And Warner Brothers really wanted a Batmobile of some description. So it was the working of all three of those people to try and make that into the final film, which I think in the it works in this universe. It works so well. It does. Um, that and he has a military vehicle that would be built by built by Lucius Fox. Did, did you, in your research, come across a story about the Tumblr and a, a regular civilian? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about it now? Yes, yeah, you talk about it now because I get think, it out of the way. I think it's great. So apparently, someone crashed <laughs> into the Tumblr during filming. They did, yeah. And they were they were later found out to be uh, sort of driving under the influence. And they say yeah. that they crashed into it because they panicked because they thought it was some sort of space age alien vehicle. <laughs> so yeah. they just ran straight into it. Which apparently a drunk man thought it was a spaceship and then ran into it with his car. Yeah. Because that's how you would respond if a spaceship was on the road. America for you, eh? <laughs> I love, I love it. I know. Apparently, it did quite a lot of damage as well. They had yeah. to stop filming. Oh dear. <sighs> so yeah. Oh dear. Civilians. Um, so yeah, we we obviously have Batman very heroically rescuing Rachel with Jim Gordon's help. Um, mm. But a, a bit later in the film, Rachel sort of re-rescued by Alfred in a much less dignified way. He just sort of throws her into the back of the rolls, doesn't he? <laughs> I really like that bit. And then he and he says like something about her having too much wine yeah. to the uh, to the chefs. Um Yeah, I like that. There's there's another I think the Alfred character, Michael Caine's character, um it was based off of a colonel that Michael Caine knew when he was in the army. Yeah. Um, so that whole character, that that softness that he's got, but that toughness was all based on someone that that Michael Caine actually knew, and I thought that really works really well in the film. And the idea as well that that Alfred might have been a retired colonel that came to work for the Waynes, yeah, you know, is in many of the versions of Batman that we've we've read, um, works really well. And I and I really like there's a line, I think probably my favorite line in the whole film is an Alfred line where he says to Bruce. Um, what was the point of all those push-ups if you can't even lift a bloody log? Yeah. <laughs> so, so... He's in I mean, the house. It's such a Michael Caine quote. That, and just the, that whole yeah. scene where uh, Wayne Manor's on fire. Um, yeah. As he enters, he knocks out one of the League of Assassins. He knocks them out. <laughs> and he says, I hope you're not a member of the fire brigade as he walks his house. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, I really like that bit. He's super quotable in this film. He's great. Yeah. There's this. Um, I really want to talk about. Obviously, the Hans Zimmer score in this film was was fantastic. It particularly works along the action sequences. Mm. Um, Zimmer's ability to pace 
the film, which he really does. You know, I know that the director has a certain amount of I have to pace this film based on X, Y and Z. But I feel when a composer like Zimmer comes in and, and writes a score for Batman, you can an editor could pace the entire film to Zimmer's score because yeah. it's that good. Oh, yeah. It works that well. Even the bits with the train sequence at the end where it kind of ups in tempo as Batman is hanging on for dear life. And then the tempo changes once Bruce goes into the train and Raz is in the train and they're in the train together. And then the tempo changes again when we cut from the train to the men in the... Uh, there's like men in the depot, isn't there? Watching the power lines and they're watching the, the uh, water pressure drop yeah, uh, or whatever. And then it cuts back to the train and the tempo goes up again. And this thing, how he does that is... Oh, it's it's so thrilling. I it, love it. It's brilliant. It's, um, it's very well scored. Um as you'd expect from someone like Hans Zimmer, but it is, um, mm. it's stunning. I like this, um, obviously after the, we go from one sequence of the, the chase sequence to the party where Raz is finally revealed to be Liam Neeson. Uh, we have a uh, an Asian actor, uh, not Ken Watambi, but another man pretending to be Raz al Ghul, isn't he? With his yeah. green cape. And he looks a lot like the comic book Raz, which I really, I didn't know that until I Googled it recently. But that's kind of what comic book Raz looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's and then like he, the, he uh, just walks off. It, it's sort of like the uh, the fake out in Iron Man 3. Mm, this obviously happened. Be- yeah, this happened before then. But uh, yeah. yeah, this isn't played up for comedic effect. It's, it's made to make Liam Neeson's character that much more intense and sinister um because yeah. he was even in uh in the casting when you read it on imdb liam neeson's credited as ducard which is how he introduces himself uh, yeah ducard is an original comic book character he's he's definitely part of the batman sort of lineage but uh yeah they used the ducard, the ducard character slightly differently here oh that's interesting yeah. i didn't know that um i really like that sequence where he reveals himself and then burns down the house. Um, there's something really sick about the idea of your mentor. And I guess he's kind of like a father figure to Bruce at the beginning. Yeah. He then just casually behind Liam, you can just see the men breaking stuff and then pouring petrol on stuff and just setting things on fire. Whilst Bruce is just literally stood there. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really, there's something really scary and nasty about that whole sequence. And then obviously he says, you know, you burned my house, left me for dead. I'm where even. And he just walks out of the house. But kind of like, well, obviously Batman's got to come back. And there's a little bit of that film where you're like, is Bruce going to be able to pull Batman out of the bag now? Yeah. And there's a genuine, there's a genuine jeopardy in that until he's saved by Alfred. And then they go to the Batcave. Um, and then they unleash the, the poison fog upon the narrows. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, from this this third act is just so popcorn movie heavy, isn't it? Oh like it yeah, just, it's very very much. It's more epic than any of the other Batman films we've seen so far. Um, I love Batman One and, and Batman Returns, but you know Batman One is just them chasing Joker up the tower to yeah. the top. This film is a action sequence. It's high octane. It's on a monorail going really fast. And they, um, they almost sort of telegraph the fact that they're changing the feel of the film because it, it's all yeah. preceded by a, like a classic suit-up montage, isn't it? Where he's grabbing things for his utility belt. And he pulls on yeah, the... he puts his belt on. Yeah, mm. and it's sort of like, ah, this is like classic Batman movie tropes happening now. This That felt sort of... It was almost like it was a jarring nudge away from... Like those emotional bits where uh, yeah. 
<clears throat> where Bruce is reminded of why you know why he falls down. It's to learn to get back up again. And he had that really sort of emotional bit, and then it cuts to him suiting up, and it's mm. it's classic Batman stuff from there on in, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like a proper the last the third act very much feels like an action movie, um, and again designed to get kids excited and adults alike. I I was thrilled. I thought it's a thrilling third act. Yeah. Um everything in this sequence works for me. I remember there being a bit where there's this moment where Bruce obviously crashes through the window, lands on the In fact, no, it's before that. When Bruce is flying through the narrows and everyone's screaming. Yeah. And then he lands on the he lands on the bridge next to Raz and he kind of lands and then cows over. Yeah. Um with his cape and and you can just hear the screams of all the people below from the distance. Yeah. He's surrounded by fog. Raz is flanked by like two ninjas. And I just remember thinking that is such a thrilling little shot of watching Bruce land on the on the edge of the bridge. Um it's and then he so makes good. that quip about him he makes that quip about him taking theatricality too literally. Yeah. Um but yeah, I love it. I think that's really good. Uh, and we're we're told I think in the story, we're told like this this is going to be a, a full-on action-packed sequence and it's okay to have fun. And the way they tell us that yeah. is by giving Gordon the keys to the tumbler. Uh, and yeah, just he Gordon's gets a Batmobile. <laughs> look, on, look on his face as he gets to drive around in the Batmobile. And you think, that is that is us being given permission to enjoy this. It's so much yeah. fun. They do that really well, though, because you've got Bruce on the train then fighting Raz mm. and then you've got the tumbler with Gordon kind of weaving in and out of the the monorail underneath the monorail and there's a shot where you see the monorail going above and the and the tumbler turning left yeah. underneath and I was like that works so well um to kind of give you that idea that he's following the sat nav to try and um outrun that train so they can stop the train and I just think yeah like even the bit with there's like a countdown sequence. I think countdowns always work really well in action films, like yeah. any action film, whether that be like a bomb or whether that be um, a sequence or like a rocket, anything that's about to happen. And it's that thing of you get to see the water pressure countdown as they're getting closer to Wayne Tower. Um, that works really well. And there's a really cool bit that I've never seen before. And I've must have watched this film a dozen times. Um, do you remember where Raz and him are fighting on the train and they're, they're making they're making like exclaims about how they're basically gonna they're e- equally matched, aren't they? Yeah. And there's a moment on the final bit of the fight where Raz uses the same three moves on Bruce that he used at the beginning when they're at the top of the mountain. Um, do you remember when he says fear does not wait for you to be ready and he kind of kicks him, hits him, punches him, and then knocks him to the floor? Yeah. And it's the same movement that Liam Neeson uses to knock Bruce to the floor as Batman. He then pins him on the floor with his leg yeah. and says, you know, you're just an ordinary man in the cape. That's why you can't stop me. And I really like that continuity that he uses the same fight moves that is cool, right at the beginning. It? Yeah, I never realized before. And if you watch it carefully, when he's on the train at the end, he uses the same three little moves to knock Bruce to the ground. And it's like saying, oh, yeah, Bruce, didn't he never learns. And I think Raz literally says, you never learn. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that, that works really well. I think that's really clever. And then there's um, that whole obviously... t- twist, isn't there, where yeah. he says, you can't stop this train. And Bruce says, who said anything about stopping the train? And that, yeah. that's when <laughs> yeah. that's when uh, Jim Gordon blows up the, the monorail support, doesn't he? Yeah, and it's just thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. Even the monorail track falling down and it kind of plows into the side of a skyscraper. Yeah. Um, 
it's just shot wonderfully and it works so well. And then obviously the bit when he just says, you know, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Yeah. So he just leaves him. Yeah. And then that train just plows off the rail tracks into the building. Um, oh, absolutely thrilling. What a film. Definitely. Uh, that's, and obviously we, we do have a little bit of like an epilogue at the end, don't we? Where Bruce is sort of digging through the remains of, uh, of Wayne Manor. And, yeah. uh, I I also really love the um, the reveal that he's bought Wayne Enterprises again. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, out of all his shares. Yeah, so he, they, obviously he's given loads of money by uh, the Wayne Foundation because of his relationship to his dad, and he he uses it really smartly to buy up all the shares when the uh, Wayne Enterprises goes public, and he reinstates uh, Lucius Fox because he was fired over the asking questions about the. Uh, the um the weapon and it's just yeah. a really great twist at the end to say actually things are on the up and up now things are, are looking better because there's a wayne in charge of wayne enterprises again i like that i thought it was yeah. really good and he's gonna re yeah he's gonna rebuild the manor at the end yeah um and he kind of has that moment of reflection about because he never cared about the house did he and now at the end of his journey he kind of cares about the house again yeah um and then there's the bit with the bat symbol and the little evidence bag which gordon gives bruce which has got the little joker card in it which i think is i don't normally like things like that yeah um in films because i feel like things like that detract too much from the film we're in do you know what i mean absolutely but i think this one because and this is again different to how a lot of films are done these days. <laughs> I say these days, yeah. but this this was planned out as a trilogy. No one yeah. said he wanted to do a trilogy. So having something that leads into the next film in a, in a, like an episodic way makes sense and works for me. I like it, and it it's not like I, I think if it had been done today, we probably would have cut to a scene with the Joker in it, and yeah, the Joker too would much. Have been, committing some sort of crime and then it would have that would have been the cliffhanger but i think this is just yeah. enough to say look this is someone we're aware of this is someone who's active in the time that this film is set and it, he will come to the fore in the next film uh, yeah but it doesn't show you that person it doesn't show you uh probably because they hadn't cast him at the time but it doesn't show you anything <laughs> yeah. about that yeah. um whereas i think uh say like successful as it was the marvel cinematic universe was quite clever in not showing thanos too soon and mm. slowly revealing him you know you, you saw bits of him you saw parts of him before you saw the full thing uh, i thought that was yeah. that was cleverly done and this feels a bit like that it's just a small bit of this character that uh, you know he leaves a calling card i like that i thought yeah. i thought it was good and then it's almost almost spoiled by the last line and it's which what the i never got to say thank you and you'll never have to i hate that line oh do you yeah, i hate that line like that for me if <laughs> if they if they left that out the film would be fine it you know it doesn't need that line it already has the it's not what you uh, are underneath but what you do that defines you that's a really great line and then this is just yeah. like another yeah. version of that line that i don't think I, I think it feels a bit cringy for me yeah okay i'll give you that 
Should we do five facts let's, before we wrap up? Let's do five facts. A, B, E, Right, fact number one. Uh, you already kind of said it, so I might just call this the, the extra... I might have to find an extra fact. But the working title for Batman Begins was originally The Intimidation Game uh, in order to shroud the film in some sort of secrecy and avoid people getting involved. I'm pretty sure, though, as soon as Bale would have shown up on set in a Batman costume, he pretty much figured out what's going on. Yeah, that would have given it <laughs> um, away. But like, it was I for like, so. the public, but also a lot of the actors didn't know what film they were signing up for. They just knew it was going to be the no. next Nolan film, and a lot of them wanted to work with him. Yeah, I thought that was pretty. That's a good cool. point. Um, when Christian Bale was filming the uh, recovery scene in bed, when uh, he's basically in bed next to uh, Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman's characters, um, while setting up the scene, <laughs> Bale was laid in the bed for so long that he actually fell asleep by the time camera started rolling. Uh, which led to Michael Caine going, he's only gone and bloody fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was a wonderful little moment. That's great. Uh, apparently he said action and Christian was just fast asleep on in the bed, That's, uh, which I thought was great. That's um, Despite being Batman, um, Christian Bale was not actually allowed anywhere near the Batmobile, never mind being able to actually drive it on set. <laughs> uh, I think Bale might be a bit of a petrol head, but yeah, they weren't. he wasn't allowed in it for insurance reasons, oh. so it was a stuntman the whole time. Oh. Uh, he's never Christian in the Batmobile. Poor Christian. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I know. Mm. I want to drive the Batmobile. <laughs> Um, this is about Killian Murphy. We hit upon um, Killian Murphy and his friendship with Nolan. Uh, this was uh, earlier because originally Killian auditioned for Batman and was actually test screened in the bat suit. Oh! Uh, so if you go on YouTube, this is for you, James, and for the listeners, you can actually watch Killian Murphy's test screening as Batman in the i believe it's the batman forever armor that he's in oh okay and it's really weird it's kind of good yeah but it's just not quite christian bale <laughs> so it didn't work anyway obviously they had to write to um killian murphy's agent and say you know you're not he's not got it um but apparently nolan had got this fascination with killian murphy's eyes and his acting style mm. and urged um, basically shoehorned Killian in as the Scarecrow because he wanted him in the film that badly and offered him the Scarecrow role. I don't think they'd even cast anyone else as Scarecrow. I don't think anyone else was even auditioned. Yeah, It was basically, we've got Crane, we've got the Scarecrow, I want Killian Murphy, and then that's how it came to be. But um, yeah, Killian's gone on to be in all of the Batman films. He's in all three of them. Yeah, uh, He has also been in Dunkirk. Uh, he's in Inception. Um, he's not. I don't think he's in Interstellar. Um, but yeah, he's got a good working relationship with Nolan, yeah. so I think that's quite quite nice, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's good. You, you sometimes find don't you, directors that uh, have almost like a muse, you know, an actor that mm, they of actors, yeah, that they they can uh, they can work really well with, and yeah, you, you can tell that you know he and Nolan get on really well. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, what else have I got here? Um, ninjas are little. This was a problem in the movie when they had a hall full of ninjas. Liam Neeson was so tall next to the other ninjas that they had to put the ninjas on wooden boxes so that they appeared to be level with him. <laughs> Do you know the bit where Liam is in the um, where they're in the, 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 train, the League of Shadows yeah. 
and they have to do the training. Yeah, apparently he was so tall that you could just see it was Liam Neeson, so That's he had brilliant. to put them all on boxes. I love that. I thought that was really Because Liam Neeson is quite an imposing person in, in real oh, life, I would imagine. He's like seven foot, I think. Yeah, he's, he's massive. He's huge. So yeah, it's that's that's a great I love that fact. Uh I actually have two more little facts. Okay. Um so the house that served as a setting for Wayne Manor uh was when uh, sorry, Mentmore Towers, which is the thorm- former home of the Rothschild mm-hmm. uh, family, located in Buckinghamshire in England. Uh this mansion also served as the O'Connell's home in Mummy Returns. Uh it's also been featured in films such as Brazil Slipstream, Eyes Wide Shut, Quills, Ali G in the House, and Johnny English. It, it's it's a uh, it's probably got more acting credits than some of the actors in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has. It definitely has. This was my favourite one. I saved this till the end. Yeah. Um, the line "Rub your chest, your arms will take care of themselves." Yeah. Is complete bollocks, and it was made up by Christopher Nolan. Uh, he's admitted that he that is not a thing. So anyone that falls into a freezing lake, don't rub your chest. Your arms will take over. It doesn't work. It's not true. Oh. Uh, they made that up. I thought it was true because I remember re- hearing it when I was a child, yeah. and I remember being cold once. And I think I might have said it to a friend who had like, fallen in a river. <laughs> rub your chest, your arms, your arms and legs will be fine. Just rub your your heart. Oh, but apparently, it makes it's not a thing. I, I was going to say, I wonder how much needless frostbite this film has caused. Um, <laughs> yeah, you need to be fully warm, your whole body. I, Nothing to do with your chest. I have an additional fact that I thought you'd like. Go on. This film. The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises were released the same year as Madagascar, Madagascar Escape to Africa, and Madagascar <laughs> 3, the Euro- Europe's Most Wanted. So there's a weird oh, synergy weird. between the Dark Knight trilogy and the Madagascar trilogy. I think we might have I mean, found our next franchise, Jake. <laughs> that was that like deliberate? Was there some sort of league going on there with the Madagascar producers? It's very odd, isn't it? <laughs> it's really bizarre, but I was reading it. I thought very that's, odd. That's fantastic. Next franchise, please. Uh, yeah. Oh man. That was uh, that was that was my only other fact that we we haven't discussed. But uh, <laughs> oh, apart from the fact that when Christian Bale was in costume, he constantly had two people trailing him to keep the bat suit smudge free. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, so there was basically a a Batman fluffer, effectively wandering around, making sure that he w- that the bat suit looked smudge free. That's right, fucking. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I um I know that he um when he came to start auditioning for Batman, Bale had um, lost a significant amount of weight for the film Machinist. Yeah. And had auditioned with Nolan, the producers, and then they had said to him, "You are you're too thin. You need to go away and get big, and then we can have a look at you, and we'll see if you fit the bat suit." So they had a bat suit made based on um, his height and physicality that he can achieve. Apparently, um, within six weeks of coming back, Christian had put on so much weight that they couldn't even fit him in the bat suit, so they just called <laughs> him Fat Man. Uh, and apparently he had to then go and lose significant amount of weight again just to just to fit the suit. That's mad, isn't yeah. it? Like imagine going from that extreme to another, like, oh, so weird. Yeah. So bad for the body, surely. Must be. But yeah, that's uh that's all my notes, James. I think I've done it. Yeah. I think that's that's the the Batman begins pretty well covered. 
Yeah, and uh, we'll do Dark Knight next. That is a long film, so we're going to have to maybe split that one up. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see how we get on. Um, but yeah, thanks, James. And thank you for listening, everybody. Please, as always, uh, like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so we can uh, keep making content and keep churning it out. Uh, it's nice to know that we're not just talking into the void like those people at NASA sending out things to aliens. I, I like the idea that there's some nutter somewhere just downloading our podcast and burning it on a CD and leaving it in the woods somewhere. If you found us that way, please tweet us. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to us in the future, because um, you've dug up some CDs and you wonder what they were, um, yeah, this is an historical document. We're almost out of the pandemic now, apparently. So yeah, yeah, we've been people have been with us all the way through it, haven't they? Really? Yeah, yeah. This this has almost been like a pandemic project for us. So uh, yeah, it's yeah, weird. Weird, but I'm I'm glad we're doing it because it's it's fun talking about films. It keeps your mind off. It is. Off the pandemic. And <laughs> yeah. And I think this is probably one of the better films and certainly better trilogies that we're going to review um, that we have reviewed so far. So it's always yeah. harder. I find it always it's always harder talking about a good film than it is talking about a crap film because that's often funnier. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the, these films have got a lot of meat on the bone to talk about, which is good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right, James, we'll let you go. Yeah. And I will uh, talk to you next week when we do... The Dark Knight. Dark Knight. We'll see you then. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. See you later. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs>